Well, our Bible is presented today as one book. One book made up of 66 different compositions. Please understand, as it was in the first century and many of the centuries before, the primary method of recording works of literature, like Acts, the book we're looking at now, was a single-sided scroll that was constructed by gluing together some form of writing material, whether it be papyrus or lambskin. What this means is that before the advent of the Codex, our typical book, this one book, our Bible, existed as 66 individual scrolls. Now, although commonplace, the disadvantages of this particular delivery system for works of literature were obvious. The standard Roman scroll was about 7 to 10 inches in height and was limited to only 30 feet of writing surface which meant longer documents had to be compiled on multiple scrolls. You couldn't get much longer than 30 feet without the scroll becoming cumbersome or unwildly. I bring this up because it not only explains to us why our author Luke wrote his account to Theophilus in two different volumes, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, but this detail further emphasizes an important reality for us this morning, and that is that when Luke is writing, when he's recording this book for our consumption, every single story, everything that's included is done so in a particular and selective way. His text space was limited. With this restriction in mind, we should note that every story Luke pins in the book of Acts was of critical importance for Luke There was no room for rabbit trails. He'd run out of space to write with. There was no room for bloviating. In any way, for Luke, his greatest challenge was not deciding what to include, but making the difficult choices what to exclude, what to be left out. Now, it's amazing to think, this is our context, that during a 10-year stretch where Jesus was doing incredible, spectacular things in and through the churches located in Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, that only three stories in a 10-year period of church history are presented for our consideration. So it is with this reality in mind that we come to understand that each story, all three were hand-selected hand-selected with direct intention for a specific purpose by Luke. Now, sadly, while the obvious significance of the gospel being extended to the Gentiles, Acts chapter 10, garners ample attention, most pastors, and I know this because I listened to most of their commentaries on this section, they tend to breeze over these two stories of Aeneas, the story we looked at last Sunday, and this morning's text, that covering Tabitha, without ever taking a moment to consider of the three stories Luke could include, he picks these three, which means that we shouldn't blow through them or breeze over them, but we should consider why in the world, when he could pick any story he wanted to, does he hand select these three in particular? Now, while Peter is hanging out ministering to the saints in Lydda. Acts 9, beginning with verse 36, we're told at Joppa, there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, 
which is translated Dorcas. That's why I would go with Tabitha and not my translated name. Dorcas has to be the worst name in all of Scripture. Sorry, Tabitha, I apologize in heaven. She doesn't have Tabitha on her name. She's alienated that and was upset with Luke for including it, I think. Anyway, this woman, glad you're not named Dorcas. This woman, Tabitha, we're told she was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. But it happened in those days that she became sick and died. So they washed her and laid her in an upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, decide to send two men to him, imploring or begging him not to delay, but to come. Now let's begin by establishing a profile of the ultimate honorable woman, that being Tabitha. First, Tabitha was a disciple. While every other passage in scripture presents this word disciple in the Greek in a masculine tense, Matthew, I'm referring to it, I'm hoping I pronounce it right, I'm not Greek, so I can't speak English really well. Matthew, disciple in the Greek, in this instance, that's not where the word we find. It's bizarre. This is the only place we find disciple presented in the text, not using the masculine but instead the feminine derivative, mathritra. Now it should be also pointed out that disciple, as a concept in general, was totally foreign to the Greek or Roman mind. They didn't have disciples. That that wasn't an idea they were familiar with. Instead, the idea of a disciple was something specific, something very particular to Hebrew culture, Hebrew religion, Judaism. The Hebrew word for disciple is Talmud. Now, though many inadvertently think of a disciple as being a student, it is true that the word literally means to be a learner or pupil. The idea of a disciple and a student being synonymous is ill-conceived. It's not actually true. You see, whereas a student seeks to learn from a teacher in order to gain knowledge and understanding, a disciple obtained training from a rabbi, a teacher, for the purpose of imitation. It's an important distinction. A student goes to a teacher to gain knowledge and understanding. A disciple goes to a rabbi to obtain experience for the purpose of not just having knowledge, but of imitation. In many ways, the best way to transfer this Talmud rabbi relationship into our 21st century Western perspective would be to describe it loosely as a really intense form of apprenticeship. Once solicited by a rabbi, a willing disciple had to make a choice. Do I want to follow this rabbi or not? And if he made the decision to do so, that disciple would forsake all other ambitions in order to follow the new master. A disciple wouldn't just hang around a rabbi. A disciple would live with the rabbi, learn from the rabbi, watch how the rabbi handled various situations. A disciple would shadow a rabbi 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Their lives would become intimately intertwined. And note, the entire 
Talmud-Rabbi relationship was designed to produce a disciple who could at some point effectively represent the rabbi when the opportunity presented itself. The relationship was designed to create an avenue, a process where the disciple could literally become like the rabbi. Consistent with this idea, Jesus would remark in Luke 6 verse 40 that a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is perfectly trained, what? Becomes like his teacher. It's interesting that Jesus not only calls people to follow him, you find this all throughout the gospel record, using a phrase common, customary to a rabbi, but he then refers to these followers as his what? As his disciples. It's important to realize as a disciple, your primary ultimate job is to represent the master and all the things that you do and all the words that you say to represent the master even in the way that you handle situations. To be a disciple means that in regards to Christianity, to your walk, if you're a disciple of Jesus, you're to imitate Jesus, to represent him. In many ways, a disciple was a proxy representative, representing him to the world. But never forget that the only way that you can effectively fulfill this incredible role of discipleship, the only way you can really be Jesus' disciple and fulfill what that implies, well, it's to, like in the first century, so intertwine your life as a disciple with that of the rabbi that there is just a natural manifestation of you becoming like him. You know, it's easy to say that you naturally become like the people you hang around. That's, tr that's the truth. But you know, it's also true that you naturally gravitate towards the, peace, towards the people you have most in common. It's, it's kind of a weird chicken and the egg situation. I gravitate towards the people that I'm like, but the people I hang out with, I become like. It's kind of a weird thing. This is what's interesting about the Talmud-Rabbi relationship. It's kind of what makes it incredible. Though it's true that we ultimately have a say as to whether or not we want to follow Jesus, though we have a decision whether or not I want to be Jesus' disciple and forsake all else, never forget the entire opportunity, the entire relationship in and of itself it exists for only one reason and one reason alone. Jesus was willing to call you. He was willing to see you and to speak into your life. Hey, take up your cross, forsake everything else and follow me. Be a disciple. It's amazing to think, it's incredible, isn't it? That Jesus would ask me to follow him that he would invest his time and his life into mine, that he would look into me, this moron, and say, yes, I'd like you to represent me to the world. The easy thought is to think, well, <laughs> he must not know me very well, but he does. That blows my mind. It would be one thing for him to ask me to follow him because of the facade that I put up that I'm all holy and righteous and blah, 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 blah that I can dance the jig and walk the walk, right? But he knows that I'm totally inadequate, right? And yet he still calls me. 
And then he equips me and he fills me. Tabitha. It's mind-blowing. It's awesome. It's inspiring. But in this community of Joppa, there was a certain disciple, which meant the community saw Tabitha as being such. She was a disciple of Jesus. So when people encountered her, this honorable woman, they felt as though they had encountered her rabbi, Jesus himself. You know, in the song that we sang to close the set, this prayer of St. Francis, he comments, make of me your hands and feet. I want to be to the people around me what you want to be to the people around me. The true heart of a disciple, isn't it? The second thing concerning Tabitha, she's a disciple, but she was also full of good works. As a disciple, her relationship with Jesus was tangibly demonstrated by her service to other people, the kindness she demonstrated to those around her. In essence, Tabitha walked the walk she talked. One of my favorite preachers in old 18th century, Scott Will Arnett, he commented concerning the important connection of discipleship, being a disciple, and service. He said of Tabitha, that she was a disciple full of good works. One phrase, indicating the wellspring, the other, indicating the refreshing stream that overflows. She was a disciple, behold the root, but she was also full of good works, behold the fruit-bearing branches. I like that, I think it sums it well. But don't overlook the obvious. Tabitha, as a disciple, had a ministry. She served. As we'll see in the next few verses, her ministry as a disciple, or the way that she practically represented Jesus to the world around her, was by taking care of the widows, by, by making them garments. She was a seamstress. May I ask you this morning, first, do you consider yourself a disciple of Jesus? And all that that implies, and in all that that means, are you following the rabbi? Have you responded to the call? Or have you not? Are you not quite yet willing to forsake all others, to forsake everything else? But the other question I want to ask you this morning, if let's say you are, like, I am a disciple. I am following Jesus. It can be difficult. It's a high call but I'm doing that. I'm a disciple of Jesus. It's who I am. Then may you consider, what is your ministry? What is your ministry? How is your relationship with Jesus spilling out, overflowing, impacting the lives of the people you come in contact with? Is your life reverberating in the halls of heaven? God, he made you. He fastened you. Jesus redeemed you. The Holy Spirit is empowering you. It's amazing. The whole Godhead is at work in your life for a reason. You know, it's really sad when we see Christians doing nothing with their lives of lasting value. Never forget, our topic of conversation like what you and I are going to be chatting about 
in heaven for eternity is not how successful you were at your career. We're not gonna be in heaven talking about how much money you amassed and left. We're not gonna be talking about how last weekend Pastor Zach beat the daylights out of Danny Seviar in the fantasy football. Although I might be talking about that in the halls of heaven. It was nice to finally get a victory. Sorry, Danny, I had to. But we're not gonna be occupied with the things that we're often occupied with here. As a matter of fact, when we're in heaven, I think that our only interest, our only conversation piece, the only thing that occupied this time on earth that had any value is what Jesus did in us and through us. You know, if you don't have a ministry, a lot of you do. A lot of you have an, an incredible ministry to your children, that you're being Jesus' hands and feet, a disciple of Jesus, his representative in the lives of those little ones, representing Jesus, teaching them, training them, raising them up to also be disciples. Others of you have, have a unique ministry of ministering to other believers, equipping saints. It's what my job is, which is kind of disappointing because my job has no role in heaven because Jesus is a much better preacher than I am. Like I am working myself out of a job. Like this will not carry over. Andy, God equipped him with the ability to sing. Musical inclination and Chad and Ashley and Brian and Andrew. Their ministry is to come and lead you in worship. How glorious. We have multiple people from hospitality, Linda being a smiling face at the door, to the ladies in the preschool and the nursery, to Joe right now, teaching your children about Jesus. It's a cool ministry. They found their call. But what about you? What is your ministry? You know, we say this over and over again, and I'll reiterate it because it's true. We believe that the majority of the ministry that takes place here at Calvary 316 occurs when you guys go out that door and represent Jesus. Our job, you know, we call this a church service. It's literally that. It's us serving the church by equipping you for the ministry, to be disciples, to go out that door and make an impact in the world. How are you doing that? Are you doing that? If you're sitting there this morning and you're like, you know, okay, Zach, you've convinced me as a disciple, I need a ministry. I'm not quite sure what I should be doing though. Easy question. It doesn't have to be that difficult or complicated. Ask yourself this question. What am I good at? I know that's loaded. Some of you are like, I'm not good at anything. Ah, that's not true. You're okay good at something. But figure it out. Like figure out what is it that I enjoy doing, that I have a knack for, and then figure out a way to take that thing and bless others with it. Like you might enjoy working on cars. I don't at all, it's not my ministry. Which I love the way that the Lord works. I like to talk, so he gave me a ministry where I could do that. I like to teach, he gave me a ministry where I could do that. If you like to work on cars, and, and you love the puzzle, the solving the problem, then find a way. You might even be making a living at it. Find a way aside from making a living 
how you can bless someone else, how you can volunteer your time. We have some guys that enjoy yard work. They make some money on the side, but they enjoy taking care of, uh, uh, you know, mowing the grass and weed eating and taking care of things like that. And you know what? They come up here at the church and they do that. But they're using what they enjoy doing, what they're good at doing to, to be a benefit, to be a blessing. What are you good at? Well, I like to cook. Once again, not my ministry. It, it, <laughs> it would be miserable. Like there was a time that I thought, yeah, I'll be, I'll be a worship leader. And then I'd sing, and it's clear, that's not my job. Like, this is not bringing a joyful noise. This is causing people to want to run from the throne, not come. Like, not my thing, right? But what are you good at? Figure out a way to take that and use it for the kingdom. It's not complicated. I like to program. Figure out a way to program for Jesus. Benevolent. Be generous. But we also see that Tabitha, in addition to having a ministry as a disciple, that she was full of charitable deeds. As a disciple, Tabitha's relationship with God not only manifested in her love and service for others, which is cool. I mean, if you're going to be like Jesus and you look at Jesus and you're going to like summarize things to one key component, he loved others. Like Jesus came to serve. So we should serve. But Jesus was incredibly generous. And in Tabitha, we see her service, her discipleship, we see it it, it coming from the depths of her soul, a generosity towards others. We don't know specifically what it was or what this looked like. It's just that she was charitable. You know, in regards to this topic of charity, the Bible, the Bible not only connects our capacity to be generous with God's willingness to bestow his blessings. But scripture is equally clear that the blessings of God will naturally gravitate towards the path of least resistance. You know, America's most famous geyser, Old Faithful, when she erupts in Yellowstone, she spews 3,700 gallons of water at a one and a half minute time span. I mean, that's pretty impressive, right? That's a lot of water. But you know, it kind of pales in comparison, seems silly, when you consider that 750,000 gallons of water cascade over Niagara Falls every single second. (laughs) 3,700 doesn't seem like a lot anymore when you compare it that over the same time frame, there's 67.5 million gallons of water pouring over Niagara Falls. Here's the point. When it comes to the amount of blessings you allow to flow into and out of your life, your capacity and God's blessings, they're intertwined. Do you want to be, when it comes to God's blessings, a small, stubborn hole in the ground that spews water only when it's forced? Or do you want to be a wide, free-flowing waterfall. The amount of God's blessings is proportioned to the amount you're willing to be generous. I'm only gonna bless someone when I'm forced to. Well, don't do that first because Paul's clear, like, don't be generous begrudgingly. 
But at the same time, like how much, here's the better question. How much blessings do you want from God? Like how much of God's blessings do you want to flow into your life? If you're a stubborn, small hole, then it becomes very difficult for the water to pass through. It limits the supply. Those two concepts are in connection, conjuncture. If you want a lot of God's blessings, then have a wide opening to allow it to flow out. It flows in, and it flows out. God is always looking. He's seeking conduits of blessing. John Bunyan, he once remarked that you have not lived today until you have done something for someone who can never repay you. It's a good definition of generosity. And while it's true that being generous, it yields an even greater reward in the life of the person than it does versus the, like the person receiving. Like the person giving seems to like get way more out of it than the person receiving that blessing. It's, it's a weird thing, like the blessing that comes from it. But here's the thing I don't want you to miss. There is an inescapable reality that the larger the conduit of God's blessing, the more of God's blessing is bestowed. The more it's allowed to flow, the more it's bestowed. This is why St. Francis, once again, he said, for it is in the giving that we receive. So Tabitha, beautiful picture of a disciple, had a ministry, service, was charitable. What an awesome woman, the honorable woman. But she became sick and she died. Despite her love for the Lord, her service, her generosity, Tabitha still suffered from sickness, and she died. Adam Clark wrote, Even her holiness and usefulness could not prevent her from sickness and death. Dust thou art, and to dust thou shalt return. It is a decree that must be fulfilled even on the saints. Luke tells us that these disciples, no doubt her friends, those that cared for her, they washed her according to the Jewish customs, and they laid her in an upper room. While in most instances, Tabitha would have been buried on the same day, that was customary, hearing that Peter was in Lydia, which was eight to 10 miles away, they decide to hold off on the burial process, sending two men to implore Peter to come at once. Now, contrary to, what, to the way that most approach this particular passage, because you will find pastors that, are, that at least propose the idea that the intention of sending for Peter was that he could come and raise Tabitha from the dead. I think that's kind of crazy, actually. Like, I don't see anything in the text to imply that they send for Peter because they thought he would come and there would be a resurrection miracle. No doubt they were suffering a personal loss. And I'm sure that these saints knew Tabitha was in a far better place. They were grieving for their loss, but they were celebrating that Tabitha was with Jesus. How glorious. You know, it would have been selfish if their motivation had been, go get Peter. She died. She's in heaven. Go get the apostle so we can snatch her back. Like that would have been so selfish. Like she's such an, an, a better place to rip her from glory to make her return to the fallen planet. If I die, don't pray for resurrection, just on a side. Like, I'm gonna miss my wife, my kids, they'll miss me, maybe. But at the same time, I don't wanna come back. I've already crossed the divide. I don't wanna do it again. 
Because if I'm resurrected, I'm going to have to die again. You know, the one thing worse than dying once is dying twice. I don't want to do that. Scripturally, no, this is abnormal for resurrection. Like we become kind of really accustomed to resurrection miracle. No doubt they're getting Peter for resurrection. There's only three instances of a resurrection in the Old Testament. And Jesus only resurrected three times. Himself, that was not a resurrection. That was an entirely different thing because he never died again. Like poor Lazarus, four days, I stinketh, and you're going to bring me back, and then I'm going to die again. Bummer. So you have three in the Old Testament, three with Jesus, and no record of the apostles raising anyone from the dead. So my point is, why are they sending for Peter? I don't think the idea of resurrection was in their consciousness, that that was their intention. Instead, I think Tabitha had such a, a reputation that they send for Peter just to give him an opportunity to say his condolences, to say his goodbyes, to be part of, the, of a memorial. Well, verse 39, we're told that Peter, he arose and he went with them. And when he had come, they brought him into an upper room. All the widows stood by him. They were weeping, showing the tunics, the garments, which Dorcas had made, bummer, Tabitha had made while she was with them. But then Peter puts them out and he kneels down and he prays. Now, to understand what's, what's about to happen, we need to consider two things. First, like how long did this process take? Like how long did it take? From Tabitha's death to Peter's arrival, what was the amount of time? Now, the process of preparing her body after death would have taken a couple hours, several hours. Then you have the travel time to and from Lydda, 20 miles round trip. This would have added an additional, at a minimum, seven hours uh, that's calculating a 20-minute mile on flat terrain with a constant three miles per hour, which is clipping pretty good. Not me. This would have taken a lot longer. You also have to factor, to determine the amount of time here, how long it took for them to decide to send for Peter, how long it took to convince him to come, restroom breaks, lunch, food stop, etc. My point is, is I think it's safe to assume that by the time, okay, Tabitha dies. By the time Peter gets, it's 24 hours, give or take. Which then think about what that means Tabitha's body looked like. Soon after death, lividity would have began as her blood experiences the natural pull of gravity. Since the text says they laid her in an upper room, it would not have taken long for a discoloration of the skin. This is helpful. This will happen to you when you die. A natural discoloration would occur on the skin as the blood begins to saturate the lower parts of her body, turning that part a bluish, dark, ugly-looking bruise, while the top part that doesn't have any blood anymore becomes ashen. So there's like this line of demarcation running the length of her body, ugly blood on the bottom, really ashen ugliness on the top, bad news, lividity. Around the fifth hour, you should note, uh, the blood clots, lividity becomes complete. It's how we can actually judge the length of time of, a, uh, of death. We can also judge if a body's been moved because the lividity will change. Aside from these effects, anywhere between the fifth and seventh hour, rigor mortis sets in. This is the stiffening of the joints, muscular rigidity. A couple hours after that, it's the legs, the arms, the torso. Tabitha's stiff as a board by the twelfth hour. Also, it should be noted that by the 12th hour, her internal body temperature would have dropped to 77 degrees Fahrenheit, 
some point later on, it, it normalizes. But what happens is this allows the bacteria in the body to begin the decomposition process. <laughs> Since you can imagine a less than sanitary environment, this being the first century, also, it's likely flies have laid eggs inside of her body orifices. Expedited by the, trimate, uh, the, the tropical climate of Joppa, by the time Peter arrives at Tabitha's bedside, these eggs have hatched. Maggots have begun eating her body. <laughs> 24 hours, decomposition, putrefaction, well underway. 24 hours, when Peter arrives. Now, we're told he comes into this crowded room. These widows are weeping, showing the tunics and garments that Tabitha had made. No doubt, I see this as a, as a real organic good scene. They're sharing their memories with Peter, their thoughts with Peter. I think it's a glorious, I don't think it's like the, the hired mourners that you would see with Jesus, where he has to kick them out of the room because they're just obnoxious. In this instance, I think it's a sweet time that Peter allows them to share these things before he decides he wants a personal moment. So he kicks them out. He says, you know, please get out of the room. He kneels down and he prays. We have no idea what he prayed. But one thing is, is evident. As a result of his prayer, God prompts him to do something unusual. You would have to hear from God to do what he does. It's interesting that Dr. Luke says that Peter, turning to the body, said, Tabitha, arise. And in that moment, she opens her eyes. She sees Peter. She sits up. He gives her his hand, lifts her up, and he calls the saints and the widows and presents her alive. And it became known throughout Joppa, and many believed on the Lord. So it was that he stayed many days in Joppa with Simon the Tanner. He turns to the body. Isn't that interesting? And then he says, Tabitha, arise. In the Greek, this, this word, the body, is the word soma, which refers to a lifeless corpse. The text indicates that Tabitha and this body were not one and the same. The body was lifeless because her spirit had departed to be with the Lord, which explains, doesn't it, why Peter does not command the body to return to life, but instead commands Tabitha to return to the body. I encourage you to read 2 Corinthians 5. Paul says a lot concerning this tent that we have, how we are not just flesh and blood. But I love what preacher D.L. Moody said concerning death. He said this to his congregation. Someday you will read in the papers that D.L. Moody of East Northfield is dead. Don't believe a word of it. At that moment, I shall be more alive than I am now. I've gone up higher, that's all, out of this old clay tenement to a house that is immortal, a body that death cannot touch, that sin cannot taint, a body fashioned unto his glorious body. I like it. Now, when you consider 24 hours into this process, into death, Tabitha opens her eyes and sits up. It's incredible. Not only does her spirit return, but her body is fully restored to a working order. The lividity, the clotting of the blood is reversed. The damaging effects of rigor mortis taken back. The decomposition of cells, tissues immediately healed. I mean, it would be a bummer if she came to life and nothing else was fixed. Picking maggots out of your teeth, bummer. 
she's presented alive. What was dead instantly sprung to life. <laughs> it should come as no surprise that as a result of the miracle, it became known throughout Joppa and many believed on the Lord. People were amazed. People were saved. Sadly, the one person that got the short end of the stick was the honorable woman, Tabitha. She opens her eyes and sees Peter. Like, you got to be kidding me. Peter's face, when I was just looking into the eyes of Jesus, it's like a nightmare. <laughs> and yet, her time was not up. Now, in conclusion, I want to get back to the original premise. If the space on this scroll, Acts, is so limited, why would Luke include this miracle in the book? I mean, do we really need another example illustrating Jesus' power to command the dead to life? I mean, if so, doesn't it then seem redundant that Luke's already done so in two other miracles? Two other miracles of resurrection. Luke tells us of the widow's son in name, Luke 7, the raising of Jairus' daughter, Luke 8, not to mention Jesus. So is it just to demonstrate his power? When he's already demonstrated it, we already know by this point in the narrative. If you don't know Jesus has the power to, to command what's dead to life, you need to go back and work on your reading comprehension. So why in the world then does Luke include this, pick this miracle designated in this 10-year, 10 10-decade 10 period of time when he could have picked anything else? I think there's two reasons. First, chapter 10 will record for us a miracle, an awesome work where Christianity ends up breaking down walls of racial and cultural separation. Christianity does something no religion had ever done. But in this moment, before he gets to that, I think we have a story, this story, included by Luke, in order to demonstrate how Christianity was already breaking down gender barriers. Keep in mind, Luke is writing the book of Acts in order to explain how Christianity was not a sect of Judaism, but was a new religious movement altogether. And this singular point, what would have raised everyone's eyebrows reading this book, was this line that Tabitha was a disciple. To reference a disciple in the feminine was unheard of. It was non-existent. Understand, in the ancient world, culture was not too kind to women viewed as secondary citizens or relegated to the home or in more extreme situations viewed as nothing more than property. Equality between men and women was non-existent. Even in Hebrew culture, women were refused the same educational and religious opportunities men were, which is what makes this reference of Tabitha being a recognized disciple of Jesus totally revolutionary. I think it's why it's included in our text. In Judaism, there was simply no such thing as a woman disciple. The rabbinical structure only included men. Not one reference in rabbinical writings of a woman at all. It just didn't happen. And yet, not so with Jesus, because Jesus called a woman, called Tabitha, said, follow me. I'll make you fisher of men and women. And Tabitha follows you see, this sets, this detail of Tabitha being a disciple sets Jesus into a category all by himself. Sue Boylan said it well. As a result of Jesus Christ and his teaching, women in much of the world today 
especially in the West, enjoy more privileges and rights than at any other time in history. It just takes a cursory trip to an Arab nation or third world country to see how little freedom women have in countries where Christianity has had little or no presence. Jesus was and is the best thing that's ever happened to a woman. He calls Tabitha to be a disciple. And then Peter, an apostle, goes to give his condolences. It was recognized and accepted. It's radical. The second reason, and we'll close with this. The radical nature, the awesome nature of the miracle itself is not that it happened. Like, it's not amazing if you're reading through this that Tabitha was resurrected. It's happened before. What's shocking is that Peter was involved. Like Peter, Peter of all the people. You see, the miracle, I'm convinced, demanded inclusion in this book, not just because it is an example of what Jesus was doing with women, but I think it also was included because it seemed to validate the whole premise of the book itself. Jesus was continuing his ministry in the world through his followers. And none was more radical an example than this. Peter saying, Tabitha, arise. Peter was but mortal. He had no power in and of himself to command the dead to rise. The only person who possessed such an authority was Jesus and he alone, which is the whole point. Because if you're reading through this and you see what's happening, you're like, that's not Peter. This has to be some other supernatural working of God through Peter. No one would be like, wow, man, Peter's real powerful calling people to resurrected life. No, it'd be like, wow, Jesus has to be alive working through Peter because that's the only way that joker's happening. There's no other explanation. Sure, Peter's words, he might've uttered them, Tabitha arise, but the power was not Peter. The power came because it was Jesus who prompted the utterance of these words. Jesus, if you read this miracle, it's without question that he's alive and that he's working through the likes of people like Peter and the likes of people like us. These three stories, chosen by Luke, intend to first show that salvation is a progressive work of Jesus, a work that continues in our lives. We looked at that in regards to Aeneas this morning. This second story teaches us that Jesus is still at work, that he's working his will in the world through disciples, both men and women. But next Sunday, we'll see that his work, it shows no partiality. And that is an amazing thing in and of itself. So Father, we thank you for your word.